Certainly we're thankful this morning for the opportunity to assemble and to gather as we have already. So thankful are we for the opportunity to sing these songs and lift our thoughts together in prayer as we have done. Let me take just a moment, if I might, and at least make a statement or two, additional announcement to what Brother Gary shared with us a moment ago. My family and I continue to be anxiously covetous of the prayers that you might offer on behalf of those gospel meetings. Next Sunday morning, uh, I'll not be able to be here with you. Uh, we, we will be involved in a gospel meeting at the Corinth Church of Christ in White County, Tennessee, just outside Sparta. And that meeting will go on from Sunday through Wednesday of that week. So we'll not be at either of the services on Sunday or Wednesday of, of next week. And the week following that, we'll be in a gospel meeting at the Flint's Creek Congregation in Jackson County. That's the 21st through the 24th. And thus, we'll not be able to be here during the period of that week either. So following today, it'll be a couple of services before we'll have the blessing of being back with you. And we certainly look forward to those meetings being a glorification to the cause of the kingdom of God. And we would certainly ask that you pray for those meetings and pray for the success of them. Success from the perspective of what the Bible would describe. As those meetings take place, uh, certainly today, as we think about a lesson entitled, An Excess of Riot. Brother Matt read just a moment ago from the fourth chapter of 1 Peter. And it is to that chapter we'll turn our attention shortly as we look somewhat interestingly at an excess of riot described on that location. A few introductory thoughts, though, it seems would be entirely in order to take us to that location and position. The topic of today's lesson is one that I hope will be rather interesting and intriguing from a number of vantage points, not the least of which might be these. As we shall discuss, it turns out to be a rather timely topic seemingly in every age. Furthermore, it is one that carries with it many vital reasons, many thoughts and interests. Even beyond that, there is something to be noted about the fact that it affects multiplied millions of individuals, not just in our country, but yea, all around the globe. In addition to all of that, it is an accomplice. It is at least a major player in a number of things, including sins of a number of varieties, sexual in character, murder even, and of course, it's also a part in the dissolution of the home, foolish behavior in all kinds of places. At this point, that to which I refer is beverage alcohol. Drinking, as the world so often portrays it. I think it would be wise for us to revisit such a topic as this one because it is found so often in the Word of God. God only needs to refer to something once to make it important. And yea, to appreciate the frequency with which this topic occurs surely garners our attention as we recognize it not only was a part and was a factor in the lives of those that lived centuries ago, it continues to be a very serious part in even life today. It is true as you come near the bottom of that slide that as we shall discuss even in terms of religious characters, it turns out that this is something that's often discussed. I would submit that one could perhaps spend from now through the rest of this month 24 hours a day nonstop discussing the evils, the characteristics, the consequences of alcoholic beverage. Our time won't permit that. But I do think it rather interesting to at least comment on some of the small attributes that come from it. And I'm talking about on college campuses. 
We know in the United States we have still the finest educational system in the world. The universities and the colleges to which our youngsters can apply and to which they can be admitted and to which they can go and study are noteworthy from a number of perspectives. But one of the things that are so quickly to be noted is if you speak with those individuals that are the campus security police and those that are involved in the activities of maintaining safety on our college campuses, one of the most serious problems, and at least in terms of the statistics I have seen, the single most serious matter to which they turn their attention is beverage alcohol. Look at just a few of these statistics. You'll notice on our campuses and colleges around this country, over 1,800 young people die every year because of things directly related to their consumption of beverage alcohol. Beyond that, there are, in fact, some 600,000 injuries reported annually, again, based on something directly related to their consumption of beverage alcohol. This is all now only on college campuses. Beyond the matter of those injuries, over 700,000 assault cases reported on college campuses every year because of alcohol, or at least alcohol has a significant part to play in it. Beyond that, I listed for you a half million sexual kinds of activities, either rape or something else, flowing directly from the consumption of beverage alcohol. Perhaps finally, well over 25%, that's a rather conservative statistic, but well over 25% reported significant academic problems, as you might imagine. Failing to attend class, sleeping through classes, not able to think on anything that was dis dispelled by virtue of the professor. All of that, of course, ignores all the vandalism that happens, the destruction of dorm rooms, campus buildings, and otherwise. Needless to say, alcohol even on campuses, is a significant issue. Many colleges have programs in which they encourage students to be wise and to not, in fact, be guilty of such things. Quite often their words are unheeded, admittedly, but thankfully there are still those campuses in which things like this, at least in severity, are not to be seen. Beverage alcohol perhaps leads us back to that first comment. The television screens are filled with commercials in which we are urged to think about how pleasant, how fun, and how entertaining it is. Have you ever noticed that all those commercials end with this admonition, drink responsibly? It seems to me that's about like giving a convicted felon who's just been released the keys to the bank and say, be good now. It's a tragedy to think about the evil and the error that has been brought on our society and that continues to be done so each and every day as a result of the consumption of beverage alcohol. Our stores are filled with it. The Tennessee State Legislature is currently considering and debating legislation that will in fact allow additional stores to sell it, as if we already didn't have enough. Perhaps it's fair to say, as that slide comes to its close, that this is by far the greatest drug problem, not only in America, but around the world. It is not right to classify it differently than other drugs. Alcohol is a drug. To my knowledge, no one debates that fact. Our federal government lists it as such beneath the Federal Drug, uh, federal drug Administration. 
the various other agencies that are designed to consider it and to keep tabs on it, all label it exactly that way. Ethyl alcohol is the active ingredient in it, and here are some additional thoughts that you and I might quickly consider. If it is the case, and it is, that this is a drug, then to defend it is no different than defending other drugs. Why not defend heroin, marijuana, and cocaine? Why not defend all of them for social consumption if you're going to defend alcohol? For to defend one is to defend all of them. It is for those reasons that isn't it strange. There are those in our society who will militantly state that alcohol should be avoided, that it should be eliminated, it should not be pursued. On the other hand, there are those who defend it, who say that it's a personal choice, a personal freedom and liberty. Sometimes they will say, however, one shouldn't become drunk. I would submit in light of all of that that our interests must surely be. What does the Bible have to say about it? You ought not care one whit what I think about it. You ought not care one whit what the President of the United States thinks about it. Our only interest is what has God said about it. Thankfully, we have the inspired Word of God that not only details what He thinks, but details what shall be open and used in judgment on that notable and great day. In John 12, verse 48, we still read these words from the lips of our Savior Himself. He said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. It would certainly be a terrifying matter then to stand before God on that occasion with all the error filled with alcohol upon one's record, if you please, and to recognize that God has condemned such activity. As you and I think about then for the next few moments this matter of alcohol, the question at the bottom of that slide is our interest. What saith the Scripture? Paul used that question twice, and one of the times is Romans 4, verse 3. And for the next few moments, let us ask then, what does the Bible have to say? We might well begin and note this is an old human problem. It is not by any means merely recent. Although it's true that our nation faces a central and great battle against it, we are by no means the first generation to have faced it. We could turn back as far as Genesis chapter 9 and appreciate even there the mention is made. Noah, shortly after coming off the ark, here was a clean, pristine world before. And true, it had been destroyed by flood waters, but there were no evil human beings because they had all been wiped away in the waters of that flood. We do read, though, in Genesis 9, beginning in verse 21, that Noah planted a garden... And as he planted this vineyard, as he in fact did that, he drank of its fruits, if you please. And we know it was alcoholic beverage because of his activities thereafter. He lay naked, if you please, or at least uncovered in his tent, and one of his sons saw him. That's the kind of thing, foolish activity, that alcohol leads you to do, isn't it? And yet our songs lift high the frivolity and the fun supposedly that accord to it. It's not frivolity, it's shameful. And the shame is highlighted as what we see in that ancient and long-ago day. Ten chapters later in Genesis 19, we see one more time the kind of things that can happen when alcohol becomes involved. Here the man was Lot. 
Lot's wife, of course, had been turned to a pillar of salt as they exited the city of Sodom. We do remember, however, that as fire from heaven was raining down upon this location and place, Lot's daughters got their dad drunk and lay with him, and they became pregnant by him. All because a man was drunk. With the characteristic of that kind of behavior, maybe we're not too surprised that the Word of God has much to say about alcohol. We will not discuss a great deal of the Hebrew and Greek original words, but I just wanted to list a few very summary statements about them. There are no less than 24 words in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic that touch that which you and I would recognize as something having alcoholic character or at least fruit of the vine character. Sometimes it has reference to what is a liquid. Sometimes it has reference to what is a solid. But it's always recognized as some kind or type of fruit of the vine. As you look further on that list, some passages overwhelmingly approve it. They speak of it as an absolute blessing from God, as, for instance, Psalm 104, verse 15. That particular chapter is a beautiful one in many ways, as many of the Word of God are. But this chapter specifically describes blessings from God, like the beautiful sunshine and the rain, the nature of the food that the animals have by virtue of God's gifts. It talks about the spring rains, and it speaks about the characteristics that attach to all the provision of God. Included in that list is wine. Clearly, we have something approved as if it is a good gift and a good provision of the God of heaven. That verse perhaps leads us to Isaiah 65, 8, where one more time it is spoken of this wine as a very good thing provided by God. Furthermore, one final one in Zechariah 10, verse 7, List this again as a good gift, a particular blessing from the hand of a great God. I make those statements to say here are some verses, and it's just a few of the many that might have been listed, that speak about this wine as a positive, good blessing from heaven. But on the other hand, there are verses that overwhelmingly condemn it, as if it's a terrible thing, as if it's that which would bring upon one the wrath of the God of heaven. Look at just a few of these. In Proverbs 20, verse number 1, The wise man Solomon said, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. On that occasion, wine is that which deceives. Wine is that which is a mocker. Wine is that which again leads one to act in ways not wise. You'll notice beyond that, three chapters later in Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29, Woe is the one that has red-looking eyes, because he has slumbered at wine, is the way the text reads it. The kinds of behavior described in that set of verses is a set of characteristics that maybe prompt us to look at the next two. In Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1, as well as Isaiah 28, beginning in verse 1, descriptions are found that highlight some of the errors of the ancient children of Israel. Errors that included taking in of alcoholic beverage. The Isaiah 5 chapter, that makes mention specifically in the early part of that chapter about how God was so upset, displeased with their behavior concerning that. Chapter 28 is rather graphic. It's one of the most graphic in that entire 66 chapter book. 
In Isaiah 28, through the first seven verses of that chapter, a description is given about those who have taken in alcohol and their vomit is described, believe it or not. The way in which they lay open and act in such inappropriate ways is described. The way in which it led judges to act foolishly, even those in high reputation. All the while, the reason being, they hadn't taken in alcoholic beverage. Maybe one final one will be Habakkuk 2.15. Among the errors of the ancient Chaldeans included this alcohol. And there in verse number 15 of Habakkuk 2, the statement is made, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. An actual woe from God pronounced upon those that would give his neighbor a bottle to drink. And may we be quick to say, the bottle didn't contain water. It contained that which led to the kind of behaviors described in Habakkuk the second chapter. It is with all that to be noted. There at the bottom of that slide, let me just go back to that for just a moment if I might. Those two distinctions lead us to conclude this rather readily. If some of these verses describe a wine that's approved and some of them describe the same wine is condemned, one of the things that many have charged the Word of God with is God contradicted Himself. How can the same thing be a blessing in one verse and a curse in another? How can the same thing be a provision of God in one verse and that which He'll condemn one to hell for in a different one? Well, may we say, again, those 24 words we mentioned earlier are such that by their very nature, they do not distinguish between intoxicating and unintoxicating. The context is all that can do that. That seems to be the key idea found in the observation of those passages. Some of those verses, and the context will confirm it, they speak about wine that's not intoxicating, wine that is not inebriating. For instance, at Isaiah 65, 8 passage, that is said to come from the cluster. Freshly squeezed juice of the cluster is called wine, and there is a blessing from God. On the other hand, as you look at passages like Psalm 104, verse 15, that passage we mentioned earlier again, that free-flowing, fresh juice, if you please, as it's described as what is also appropriate for human consumption, those blessings maybe lead us to ask about these things. If it's that which, of course, is highlighted as being approved, what about that is, that is intoxicating? What about that wine that falls in that other category? Let's look at that a little bit more carefully and make sure that we can see some of the passages that relate to its presentation. First of all, those passages, some of which we mentioned earlier, that make mention of the evil associated with this alcohol, are we sure that's intoxicating? Let's let the context assist us. I mentioned in Isaiah 28, Specifically in verses 6 and 7, reference is made to those who err in judgment. That means they've made a mistake in their choice of action and they act in inappropriate fashion. They have erred in vision as well as in judgment. I mentioned a minute ago the kind of behavior to be seen by those who have done such. Their vomit is seen. They've thrown up with hangovers. They have described other kinds of behavior. And here clearly God has condemned it in the very nature of the lives of His own people of Israel. Beyond the error that's described there, 
Let's cast the spotlight more fully on Proverbs 20, verse number 1. May we recall that the writer of Proverbs was Solomon. Solomon had access to anything that this world had to offer that he wanted. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 described how whatever my eyes wanted, I withheld not from them. Be it possessions, be it laughter and merriment and mirth, be it the characteristics of money, the opportunity to give commandments and jurisdiction to others. He had many servants. But among the things that he tried was also apparently alcoholic beverage. He even mentions it in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 2 through 4. But as he makes mention of it, let us revisit this statement of Proverbs chapter 20. Wine is a mocker, he wrote. Strong drink is raging, he wrote. And whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Solomon is known for his wisdom. He is known in 1 Kings 3 to have prayed unto God. And as God in fact responded, God said, Whatever you want, I will give you. Solomon asked for a wise and understanding heart. 1 Kings 3 verses 8 through 10. We notice one of the ways in which that's seen is the nature of these books of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And in the midst of this book, he wrote, Wine is a mocker. Wine doesn't tell you the truth. It dulls the senses. It impairs the judgment. It brings one to be able to think less clearly than what one otherwise would, and thus one can easily make mistakes. One can easily act in ways that truly are unbecoming and unfitting. Wine is a mocker. Isn't that one of the things, though, that you and I see about us? Individuals enter into the Walmart or other stores and they walk in out with their case of Bud Light, their case of Paps Blue Ribbon, whatever other kind happens to be their favorite, and proceed to their domicile or place, sometimes drink it in the car, and they proceed all the while, slowly but surely, to dull the senses. Before one knows it, accidents have happened. How many on a given day in this country are killed because of an accident involving alcohol from one or both drivers? How many per day in this country are facing the difficulty and misery of home because a husband is a drunkard or a wife is a drunkard or a drunkard is us in some other way impacting the family? What a terrible thing. Wine is a mocker, the ancient writer said. It appears to be fun. It appears to be that which is enjoyable. It appears to be that which is the common order of the day. Wine is a mocker. It brings nothing but misery. It brings nothing but a sense of impairment. God gave you and me a brain and He expects us to use it, not to impair its abilities, not to in fact diminish its capabilities. And yet that's all that alcohol does. The Food and Drug Administration lists it as a well-known depressant. That's why those that take it, it removes them from thinking about their problems for a little while. But let's think about it this way. Aren't the problems still there when you come out of your hangover? Aren't they still there when you finally wake up and are sober again? Sure they are. Alcohol solves no problems. It only makes problems worse. Think of the money that has to be spent to purchase it the danger that one puts himself and others in as a result of it. 
And again, the foolishness that comes along with those who act in such ridiculous ways when they have it in them. Alcohol leads us to some of these New Testament verses as well. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we find here that in the midst of this chapter, Paul has these words for the church in Ephesus. May we never forget that this warning is again given to the church. So surely if God expects this of the church, what about those that ought in the world to learn what to do to be right with Him? In verse number 18 of that chapter, the inspired penman, the inspired servant of God said, Be not filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And you'll notice mention was made about this word excess. Be not filled with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It might be interesting to rehearse a moment. The verb that's employed there is the verb methusko. In English, that would be spelled M-E-T-H-U-S-K-L, methusko. And that word, if you will appreciate perhaps a, a Greek dictionary or one of those lexicographers, the word simply means to begin to be softened. That's the way that Robert Young in his lexicography has translated it. Others like Thayer stated as to become drunk. You'll notice the verb become is an active action verb and it describes a progressive state of being. It is at this point that perhaps we can ask the question, as the New Testament employs this word drunk, does it employ it in a way descriptive of a final state or descriptive of a progression basically from first drink until last? We must allow God Himself to help us understand that distinction. Isn't it true? It's possible one could go and buy the beers and drink a whole case of it. And sure, by the description of our modern day, you have made yourself drunk. But might we say this, if you have drunk a few sips, a part of one of those beers, are you still drunk? Are you drunk, one beer drunk, rather than twelve? If the word means to begin to be softened, then it describes a state of progression, not just a final state to be arrived at. And with so being, maybe that highlights some of these other passages as well. When Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 13, 13 and condemned drunkenness, was he then condemning the entire state from first drop until last? Surely he was. And what about that text in Galatians 5, 21, when no drunkards will enter heaven? If drunkenness is then a progressive state, and if drunkenness will keep one from heaven, isn't that a serious then matter that all should strive to avoid? All should strive to have nothing to do with? This social consumption of alcohol certainly was a very serious matter in the first century era too. The city of Corinth was known for its very progressive stance. We like to think we're progressive today, at least many cities do. In Corinth, anything was possible because there were no limits. The Roman rules for that city were extremely lax. You could engage in whatever you wanted, including prostitution, almost freely. In the midst of it, no wonder drunkenness was so open. And yet here was a nucleus of a congregation in Corinth. They needed strength. They needed encouragement because everything around them told them, you people are just too fundamental. You people are just too narrow-minded. Why don't you live it up a little? 
And Paul said, be not given to drunkenness, Romans 13, 13. And to the Corinthian individuals in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, drunkenness will keep you out of heaven. May we say that nothing in light of that has changed. The New Testament hasn't changed since then. The words of God haven't changed since then. Maybe that leads us to ask about these other words that are employed so frequently, especially in Paul's writings. This word sober, that's another one of those terms that we use today, but it has come to mean something very different than it meant in the New Testament era, at least in the, in the language of many. Today we think about sober in one characteristic or one way, but might I ask you to notice here what is meant. Again, today we often use the word sober as opposed to a person who is totally and completely inebriated. In the mind of many, if you have one beer, you're not drunk. You're still sober, all is well. But look at what these verses command of us. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 8, Paul expressly commands those that would be pleasing before God to be sober. It's an absolute commandment. Just as surely as you be baptized, you be sober. There's no room for misunderstanding it. There's no room for misinterpreting it. Whatever that word sober means, you and I as Christians must satisfy it. You'll notice that Peter joined in the chorus in 1 Peter 1.13. Again, Peter commanded sobriety, soberness as it's there defined to be a part of the Christian life. Finally, in 1 Peter 4.7 and 1 Peter 5.8, maybe that latter one is the most familiar to all of us. Listen to the sternness of this command. Be sober. Be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But the first two words of that verse, be sober. I wonder what the word sober means. I've attempted to, to define what it seems as the clearest lexicographers are able to assert. It means to drink no wine. If it then means to drink no wine, then that means one drop or many. To drink none is to not drink any. Isn't it true then that this matter of moderate social drinking appears to be overwhelmingly condemned in the New Testament? So much so the language is strong. Be sober. Be sober. I realize our youngsters... Often when they get to high school, I mentioned a moment ago about the problems of college campuses. It's true that often youngsters, when they're finally out from under the protective custody of dad and mom, they have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more liberty. They often run wild with the characteristics associated, including alcohol. But notice that we as adults can be guilty in many cases of virtue the same thing. There's a party at work and alcoholic beverages are served. They even have a keg available where many, many gallons of it are, are accessible. Help yourself and enjoy a good time. Not there. What about stopping off at the beer joint on the way home after a hard day's work? Have a nice cold one with the buddies and the friends before you go home. Isn't that tempting, at least for many in our world? Isn't it one which our songs on the song on the radio seemingly speak about that almost every other song? But notice, God has said that wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, 
And that word raging means to be a brawler. It leads to nothing but difficulties internally and externally. Those that are deceived thereby are not wise. As we revisit this New Testament meaning just a moment, isn't it interesting to see again how that this error in vision is highlighted in that? That all that does bring us to that text that Brother Matt read just a moment ago. And we'll use that as the last part of our lesson this morning. In 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse number 1, a description is found about again, as Peter wrote to those of that day, some of the difficulties that they were facing. Rather than focus on those previous verses, notice again the reading of verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. You'll notice there's where I took the top, or actually the title for the lesson, Excess of Riot. You'll notice in verse number 4 that the very thing of which Peter spoke are now things which these individuals were no longer doing. They had given it up, whatever it was, and Peter said, these who are your neighbors are confused because you don't do it anymore. What were some of the things they formerly had done that they no longer did? Verse 3, lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Six things are mentioned. Six items are listed. Our interest will basically be three of them. Notice the phrase excess of wine. Literally in Greek that means to bubble over with wine. It seems a clear reference to those who are in a state of complete and total intoxication as you and I would identify it even today. They are bubbling over with it. They've had many, many drinks. You'll notice this was a former way of life for some, and Peter was so commendable. You've given that up. That was sinful. That was one of those wicked ways of the Gentiles. But nextly, he makes mention of revelings. That word revelings has to do with feasts and drinking parties. That's, in fact, the thrust of the original Greek word. That word, as you make use of it here, you'll notice again, this kind of frivolity is what the Gentiles had done. It's what you in a former age had done, but you've given that up. You no longer behave like that. You no longer have such uncouth conduct. You have no conduct like that that would be looked upon as disfavorable from God. And then finally, there is this word banquetings, which admittedly, in King James English is not a word you and I at all use today. This word banquetings literally means a drinking, a drinking party. And so it is that in that usage or in that particular word, that Greek word has a thrust indicative of this consumption of some kind of liquid that led one to this kind of behavior that was lascivious, Lustful? This kind of behavior certainly didn't include milk, and it certainly didn't include water. 
Paul Peter here was condemning that which you and I would recognize as these alcoholic beverages, taken either bubbling over with it or in moderation. It mattered not. As Peter condemned those things, maybe the last element of our lesson today, one final appreciation might take us to, again, the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 5, or rather 1 Timothy in, in that particular chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5. We read, abstain from all appearance of evil. That abstaining from those things that have an evil content and character maybe challenges one final thought to notice what Paul told Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5, he did say, didn't he? Drink no longer water, but take a little wine for thy stomach's sake, for thine often infirmities. And so many throughout the ages have capitalized on that passage and said, there is a biblical statement that allows me to drink beer. It allows me to drink wine. I can have even a little whiskey if I want to. Paul told Timothy he could. There's a world of difference between the rightful interpretation of that passage and the kind of nonsense I just spoke. That passage again, here was a young man, Timothy. And according to the words of Paul, Timothy was a complete abstainer from alcoholic beverage. He didn't touch it, he didn't drink it. It took the admonition of an inspired apostle even to encourage him when sick to take a little of it. Only in that case, and even then when you're sick... Timothy, take a little alcohol. If it's good for the stomach, if it's good for the infirmities of the body, but not for social consumption, not for always taking it in for beverage alcohol. As we've seen, these other verses condemn all that overwhelmingly. And so it is as our lesson comes to its conclusion this morning. We live in a world in which you and I must be strong, steadfast and true to the statements of the Word of God for so many in the world have far different thoughts, different encouragements as it relates to this subject. Beverage alcohol is a mocker. It is a brawler. And those that are deceived by it are not wise. They err in vision, Isaiah 28, 7. And as they err in vision, that brings us back to that text in 1 Peter. They participate in excess of riot. May you and I have a mindset determined not to be guilty of this kind of worldly behavior, this kind of alcoholic beverage, recognizing that those who do so have brought upon themselves a need to come unto God. It may well be that today as you and I think about friends and neighbors and others, may we be reminded about the steadfastness of our own thinking to be convicted and convinced in mind not to let someone persuade us that maybe we don't know correctly or maybe that we cannot be sure, but to recognize God has spoken on the subject and He has left no uncertain terms about it. Today, as we come to this point of conclusion in the lesson, what about your life and mine? We read in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight: Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If it might be that there's one or more in the audience today of whom we can pray for your encouragement, pray for sins known publicly to, the, to be forgiven, or if you've never become a Christian initially, that we might assist you in an overwhelmingly positive day for you. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Matthew 11, 28-30. Do you want the eternal rest that only the Master can provide? Then why not today? Lay yourself open before Him as you come. We'd be honored to make note of your belief, your repentance, to take your public confession and to assist you in your baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could be of help to you this very day in that way, or again, praying for strength and encouragement, we'd be delighted in whatever way we can assist. We would only ask that you take this opportunity and a convenient one to let us know in what way we can help and do so even now, while together we stand and while we sing.